<laughs> Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be up here again. Uh, thank you all for coming. Let's, uh, let's bow for some prayer before we get started with, with the message this morning. Lord, we thank you that uh, uh, your word is still true and relevant thousands of years after uh, you inspired it. We thank you, Lord, that we can look at uh, old passages that we've looked at a hundred times before, and we can still uh, get something new out of it. And we can still uh, come away with, with some fresh uh, insight uh, by your grace. And Lord, we just pray that you would be with us this morning and help our hearts uh, and our minds to be attentive this morning as we uh, take a look at your word. Thank you, Lord, in your holy name we pray. Amen. So open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be headed this morning. Philippians chapter 2. How many of you guys know what a weekend warrior is? There's a couple different kinds of weekend warriors. There's your army reservist. Uh, That's not the kind of weekend warrior I'm talking about. I'm talking about your average run-of-the-mill guy who works Monday through Friday and then comes home on the weekend and starts a project, makes the Home Depot run, and starts doing something that they have no idea how to do. Um, Because typically the the weekend warrior isn't specifically trained to do this task that he's about to do. It's just something he kind of figures out as he goes along. Most guys are weekend warriors to some extent, and, and I consider myself a fairly adequate weekend warrior myself, um, <clears throat> although as, as Tammy would tell you, I, I quite often end up in the emergency room. <laughs> it's, it's true. Uh, head injuries are, are my favorite. I've had quite a few of those. Um, for example, <clears throat> there, there was a time many years ago when we had our kitchen remodeled, and so we had the old kitchen cabinet sitting in the garage, and I thought, hey, this would be a good weekend project to hang up the old kitchen cabinets in the garage. So Tammy said, you should get some help. I said, I, I don't need help. Come on. You know, <laughs> what could go wrong? <clears throat> no, you should get some help. You should call Bill. Bill, you know, can come over and help you. I'm sure he'd be willing. I don't need help. I'm fine. I can do it all by myself. So I grabbed my tool belt, and I grabbed a handful of screws, put them in the tool belt, grabbed my Ryobi 14-volt cordless drill with the Phillips bit, and I was all set to go. So I grabbed my ladder, and all I had to do was climb up the ladder with a cabinet in my left hand, hold the cabinet in place with my left hand while drilling the, the, the screws into the wall with my right hand. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so... So anyway, the first few cabinets went fine, you know, climb up the ladder, hold the cabinet in place, take the drill driver, drill the screws in, fine, no problem. But then I came to one screw where uh, I was holding it in place, and I drove the first screw in, everything was fine, then I reached into my tool belt to grab another screw, and I was all out of screws. So now what do I do? The box of screws is laying on the floor down there, so I'm going to have to get down off the ladder, but the problem is that I'm still holding, I'm still supporting the cabinet. It's being held by one screw, and I'm thinking to myself, well, there's nothing in the cabinet. I mean, it's empty. The screw should be able to support the weight, right? 
So I let go of the cabinet, and I climbed down the stairs, the, the ladder, and I reached down to grab a handful of screws. And as I'm reaching down to grab the handful of screws, bam, the thing lands on my head. Emergency room, here I come. More stitches. So the problem here wasn't the fact that I wanted to hang these cabinets. The, the, the problem was that my pride got a little bit too heavy for me, right? I wasn't willing to listen to Tammy's good advice. We weren't on the same page. We weren't unified. Uh, we weren't of the same mindset. She wanted me to do the right thing, but I was being stubborn. I was prideful, and I wanted to do things my own way. And as a result, um, you know, the hospital had to use up some of its thread, and I walked away with uh, a headache in more ways than one, figuratively and uh, literally walked away from there with a headache. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul isn't going to instruct the Philippians on how to hang uh, cabinets in the garage, but he is going to talk to them about what it means to be unified, to be like-minded, and what it takes to get there. The fact that it takes humility to get there, to become like-minded and humble. So let's take a look at the first couple verses of chapter 2 of Philippians. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The first word of the first verse is the word so. That means that he's continuing a thought from something that he had said prior to to verse 1. So let's actually take a look back a couple of verses. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 29. We'll read the last couple of verses of chapter 1. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So when Paul gets to chapter 2, he just got done telling the Christians in Philippi that they are not only called to become believers, but they're also called to suffer for Christ. And then he moves into chapter 2. And he says, so if. Well, that word if means that there's a conditional clause coming up. That means if there's an if, then there's going to be a then. If this is true, then this is going to be the result of it. And we see in verse 1 is the if part of the clause. Verse 2 is the then part of the clause. So let's take a look at this again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, So, if there is any comfort from love, so if there is any participation in the Spirit, so if there is any affection and sympathy, then we come to verse 2, the then part of the clause. He says, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. Then complete my joy by having the same love. Then complete my joy by being in full accord and of one mind. Saying, in light of the fact that you are called to suffer for Christ, take a look at how blessed you are currently. Take a look at 
encouragement. Take a look at the comfort. Take a look at the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at the deep relationships that you enjoy as a direct result of your relationship with Christ. And in light of those things, complete my joy. Make me happy. Complete my joy by being by, by loving each other, by being in agreement with one another. Paul says that his joy will be complete if he can see the church living this way. Seeing the church loving one another and being like-minded will outweigh Paul's chains. Even though Paul's in prison, he can be completely, completely satisfied and filled with joy if he sees the church being loving and like-minded. Now, keep in mind that he's speaking to a church congregation here. He's not speaking to people outside of the church, because outside of the church, people can have any goal under the sun, right? People are not going to be unified. That's not normal. Some people might want to become a doctor while somebody else wants to become a plumber. Some people may want to climb Mount Everest while someone else might want a vacation at a Holiday Inn in Fargo. Um, Any goal under the sun will come outside of the church. But Paul is saying that within the church, be like-minded and loving. And that will make me completely satisfied and completely filled with joy. Paul wants the the Christians in Philippi to be different. Above everything else, he wants them to be unified and loving. You see, Paul is in prison. Paul has already suffered for the gospel. And Paul knows that those relationships that he has in the church, those people who are like-minded with him, they have been an encouragement to him while he's been in prison. Without those like-minded people, he knows that his life in prison would be a lot more difficult. But how do they get there? How do they become unified and loving? Let's take a look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So within the church, don't do anything within the church because you are going to gain from it. Don't do anything within the church because you're going to get some benefit out of it. That's what Paul is saying. So for example, if you want to join the the worship team, don't do it because you want to show off. Don't do it because you like being the center of attention. If you want to give money to the church, don't do it so that people are going to notice how uh, generous you are and and comment about that and compliment you on that. If you want to volunteer at Itasca Fest, don't do it because you want to feel good about yourself. You feel like you did some kind of charitable work, and so that's going to make you feel good. Those are the wrong motives. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is saying make yourself less of a priority and make others a higher priority. Paul isn't saying everyone else in the church is more significant than you, but he's telling you to treat them as if they are. Treat others as if they're more significant than you. 
Humility doesn't mean putting yourself down. It doesn't mean thinking that you're worthless. It doesn't mean walking around telling people, oh, I'm, I really stink at that. I'm really bad at that. Everybody else is so much better than me. It's not this false modesty. Here's what humility is. Humility is simply an accurate assessment of who you are, both good and bad, right? On one hand, we're all sinners. We all sin. We will sin today. We sinned yesterday. We will sin tomorrow. We fail over and over and over again. But then yet, on the other hand, God created us. We are handmade by God. We're created by God in the image of God. And he counts us so valuable that he sent his only son to die so that we could be saved. And not only that, but he's given each and every one of us a purpose in this world. And he's giving us the gifting that we need to accomplish that purpose. So on one hand, we fail. We're failures. On the other hand, we are valuable in God's eyes. That is an honest assessment of who we are, good and bad. And if you can understand that, then you can understand what humility is. If you think you're better than everybody else, you're not humble. But also if you think that you're worse than everybody else, you're also not humble. Going back to those examples, if you want to be on the worship team, do it because you want to benefit others. If you're going to join the worship team, do it because you want to help enhance the worship experience of everybody else in the congregation. If you want to play tambourine in the worship band, but you don't have a sense of rhythm, don't join the worship band because you're not going to enhance the worship experience of others. You're going to detract from it because you're going to throw the timing off. If you want to give money from the church, if you want to donate money, do it because of how God is going to use that money to benefit other people. Have other people in mind when you donate that money. Maybe that money will be used to repair the parking lot so that people don't trip and fall and break a leg when they come walking in the church. Maybe that money is going to be used just for mundane things, to, to pay the electric bills or whatever. Those things are important too so that people can come in here and worship together. Maybe that money is going to be used to, to buy food for a food pantry to benefit those people in need. Whatever the case may be, when you give money, do it not so that people notice that you're giving money, but so that that money might be used to glorify God and benefit other people. If you volunteer at Itasca Fest, don't do it because um, you want to feel good about yourself. Do it because of what somebody else can get out of it. Do it for somebody else. Think about those that you might have a chance to talk to while you're at Itasca Fest and invite them to come to the church. And they might then hear the gospel. They might be blessed by being a part of the family that, that we enjoy so much together. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul isn't saying that you should totally neglect yourself. But he's saying you shouldn't focus only on yourself, that you should also focus on others. Parents understand what it means to love with humility. Because when you become a parent and you have that little baby at home, you know that you have to give everything up and you have to essentially become a servant to that baby. 
You have to feed the baby. You have to clothe the baby. You have to get up in the middle of the night to attend to the baby's needs. You have to teach that baby. You have to help that baby grow and guide that baby. And you may even set aside a a separate bank account so that you can start saving for that baby's education. Everything you do when you're a parent of a young child revolves around your kid. And that's humility. That's humility. That is making yourself lower and making the other person higher. Do it, you don't even think about it. You do it out of love because it's just second nature. It's just the way that it is. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So have this mindset of humility. Possess this way of thinking Own this attitude. Why? Because it comes from Christ Jesus. That way of thinking comes from Christ Jesus. Outside of the church, we can't expect people to think that way. They can't think based on humility. Because outside of the church, the natural state of the way that our brain works, the sinful state is completely based around selfishness right? Like Paul says in verse 3, selfish ambition and conceit. That's the natural mindset. That's our default program. So it takes effort for us to step aside from that default situation and become humble instead. Paul is saying that this this attitude of humility, that's that's Christ's way of doing things. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we're taking that name of Christ and we're applying it to ourselves. We're saying we are Christians. We are Christ's ambassadors, right? We're taking that name Christ upon ourselves. And if we're going to do that, then we should also have that same mindset of humility that Christ had. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, let's look at it on the board. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. Lowly means humble. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus says, learn from me, copy my attitude, be humble the way that I'm humble, and if you do this, you will find rest for your souls. Paul wants the Philippians to overlook all of the little petty arguments that they might get into, all of the little petty disagreements that they might have. Paul wants them to overlook maybe some of the annoying habits that some of the other people in the congregation may have. He wants them to get past that stuff. He said something similar to the Corinthians. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He told the Corinthians something similar. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So have this mindset of Christ, this mindset of humility among yourselves. Six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Even though Jesus is God, he chose to push that fact aside. He chose instead to humble himself and make himself less. 
He wasn't striving to be like God. He wasn't grasping for that. He already was God, and yet he chose to take all of the power, all of the attributes that belong to him, and he chose to move them off to the side in order to humble himself. Instead of grasping that deity, he emptied himself of it. He poured out all of those things that were his. All of the power, the glory, all of the knowledge, all of those things that were his inherently because he was God, he chose to push those things to the side and he emptied himself of those things. He didn't stop being God during that time, but he humbled himself and chose to be humble. When Paul said that he was born in the likeness of men, it doesn't mean that he was born looking like a man or that he was born with similar attributes to a man. It means that he was born absolutely as a man. He was completely man while he was completely God. He fully took on the characteristics of man all the way to being born as a baby. Can you imagine that? God being born as a baby. God needed to be fed. God needed to be clothed. God needed to have his diapers changed. God needed to be taught. God to memorize scripture like the rest of us. And then when he became a man, when he became an adult, he continued to humble himself and he became a servant. Let's look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as if humbling himself by becoming a baby wasn't enough, and as if humbling himself by becoming a servant wasn't enough, he took humility to a whole new level. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And it wasn't just any death. It was death by crucifixion, death on a cross, that painful, torturous death that is reserved only for the worst criminals, the worst sinners, all of the things that he was not. That was the extent to which Jesus was willing to humble himself. Let's take a look at Isaiah 53, starting at verse 3. Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. So Jesus placed himself under the law. He obeyed it completely, and then died as one who didn't. Let's look at verse 9. Therefore, as a result of that humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So therefore, because of that humility, God exalted him to the highest place, to the place where he belonged in the first place. 
and God gave him the name that is above every name. Imagine that. One day we're going to be in eternity with everyone else who has ever lived. Imagine that. And at the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus is going to ring out and everybody's going to bow before him and shout, Jesus is Lord. And that doesn't just mean Christians either. It says every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Think about all of the worst people in history. Think about the Hitlers out there and the Bin Laden. They're going to bow before him too. And they're going to cry out, Jesus is Lord. Paul is saying that this is going to happen because Jesus humbled himself. God is exalting Jesus to his rightful place because he humbled himself. And you want to know what's really crazy? What's really crazy is that Jesus says that we are going to be humbled as well. Let's take a look at Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian has the choice of being humble or being humbled. The irony of this verse, the irony of this statement that Jesus said, is that if you're really a humble person, you don't even want to be exalted. It kind of goes against the grain. It goes against your very nature. You don't want to be exalted. If you're a humble person, you want to stay humble. But what, God, what, uh, what Jesus was referring to there, he was referring to the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys who were the teachers, the guys who were the religious leaders, the guys who liked to walk around in their fancy uniforms and look down on everybody else and curse everybody else and make up rules and regulations for everybody else to follow except them. And Jesus looked at those scribes and Pharisees and said, you guys are exalting yourselves, you guys are putting yourselves on a pedestal, but you are going to be humbled. And all of those people that you're walking on, those people that you're, that you're trampling on and you're stepping on their rights and you're, you're imposing all kinds of rules and regulations and burdens on them, I am going to exalt those guys. I am going to reward them for their humility. Now, in a local church, it's pretty easy to be like-minded. It's pretty easy to be unified because, let's face it, we're all listening to the same preaching. We're all under the same teaching. And if you don't like the teaching in that particular church, you can leave and you can go find another church where you're going to hear teaching and preaching that you like. So it's going to be pretty common that any local church you go to, there's going to be a pretty high degree of unity among people attending that church. However, take a step back and take a look about the church, capital C, as a whole. Take a look at Christianity worldwide, and you're going to find that Christians are not unified. That's why we have denominations. That's why on this block over here you see a Catholic church, on this block over here you see a Baptist church, Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a Bible church, Greek Orthodox church, all of these different denominations represent the fact that we as Christians are not unified. Denominations are nothing more than divisions in the church. They define all of the areas where we disagree, not where we agree. We disagree about theology. 
We disagree about worship styles. We disagree on whether the cross should be presented empty or with an image of Jesus hanging on it. We disagree on how the church should get money. We disagree on how the church should spend money. We disagree on how the Sunday school should be run. We disagree on whether or not Christians should be allowed to drink alcohol or dance. We disagree about how people should dress when they go to church. We even disagree about how to treat people who disagree with us. Christian nations are defined by their disunity, by the things that separate them. Now, Paul isn't saying, okay, just give in to anything anybody has to say. Just give in to any bad teaching. We all, can't we all just get along? That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul, when you read his letters, he quite often scolds churches for incorrect teaching. But what he's saying is that we should be unified despite those differences. We should be able to set those differences aside. And if we think back to what we just read at the beginning of the sermon, at the end of chapter 1, Paul was giving these instructions based on the fact that Christians are going to suffer, right? And what Paul wants to see here is the church to be unified so that when the suffering comes, when the persecution comes, they can stand together, they can be unified, and they can support each other. We may disagree on some things, but all Christian denominations, no matter what, there are certain things that we agree on. These are all fundamental things that we agree on. And if we don't agree on these things, then it's not a Christian church. We all agree that we're created by God, that we're created in the image of God. We all agree that we are loved by God. We all agree that we're sinners. And we're in need of a savior. We all agree that Jesus died for our sins and paid the price for us so that we could be blameless and pure in God's eyes. We all believe that we all have a purpose from God and that God gifted us in order to accomplish that purpose. These are things that all Christian churches believe and teach. These are the things that unify us. But we can't see the the areas where we're unified when we concentrate so heavily on the areas where we're not unified. God gave us each other. Let's take a look at Romans 12.4. Paul said, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So in other words, we complete each other. Together, whether we're Catholics or Presbyterians or Methodists or anything, we together form one body, body of Christ. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, 
Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of verses. But if we were to sum it up, you know what we could do? We could go back to Philippians 2.3, one of the verses that we just read. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, others more significant than yourself. That's a quick summary of all of those words that we read. We can't control what other Christians believe or what they think or what they say, but what we can control is how we interact with them. Some people love to debate. Some people love to jam their opinion down your throat, right? Some Christians love to debate theology and they're aggressive and rude about it. But other people, they don't want to discuss religion at all because they know that they're not going to be able to articulate why they believe what they believe. They're not going to be able to articulate what they believe. And so they'd rather just avoid the point altogether and be left alone. It doesn't matter if you're on one extreme or the other. Our approach to other Christians should always be the same. It should be humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 20, Paul said, To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now hear this last verse here. Usually when you read this passage, you cut off at that point. But I'm going to read this last verse, 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul spoke to a lot of people with a lot of backgrounds, with a lot of different uh, personality types. But Paul didn't change his message. But what he did change from one person to the next was his approach. He changed the way that he approached the conversations. He humbled himself and became one of them. He humbled themselves and tried to be relatable to them. He humbled himself. He tried to put himself in their shoes. He tried to understand where they were coming from. Now, why did he do that? Because of verse 23, for the sake of the gospel that he might share with them in its blessings. In other words, he did it for their sake, not for him. He already knew the message that he was trying to convey, but he molded, he didn't change the message, but he molded his approach so that the person listening to him would be receptive to it. Now, the only way that Paul could accomplish this was to listen to the people that that he was with, right? To get to know them. 
In other words, Paul didn't talk to them. He had a conversation with them. So he was able to listen to them and find out where they were coming from. When we approach others out of selfish conceit, like Paul talks about in verse 3, we end up doing all the talking. And we end up alienating the people that we're with. But when we humble ourselves and when we treat others as if they're more significant to us and when we put their needs before our needs, then we can become united. Then we can become like-minded. Humility is contagious, isn't it? I mean, imagine that, that guy who we were talking about a minute ago who's real aggressive and, and wants to argue his point and wants to win that argument. Our natural tendency is going to be to fight back, right? We want to make our point. We want to win the arguments. The more aggressive they are, the more aggressive we want to be in our response. It's natural. But imagine, instead of becoming aggressive in, in the response, imagine saying, you know what? I see your point. I get where you're coming from. I have a different point of view, though. Here's, here's what I think. Now, don't you think that an approach like that might actually cause that aggressive person to settle down a little bit, maybe cool his jets a little bit, and actually listen to your point of view? Probably. It's a non-combative way of approaching it, and Paul knew that you could catch more flies with honey. Practice makes perfect, though. When you practice humility, you get better at it. When you practice humility, it becomes more comfortable. It becomes a habit. And once it becomes a habit, if you keep on practicing humility, it just becomes second nature. It becomes who you are. And there's no downside to that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... um, We are unified here. We thank you that that local bodies can be unified with one another. Um, It's so important. It's such a blessing. It's so important when trials come, when tough times come, when diseases hit and you go to the hospital. It's so refreshing and so nice to be able to have like-minded people who love you come and visit you. It's so nice to have like-minded people who are united with you, praying for you. But Lord, your church isn't just made up of one congregation. Your church is all believers. And this is where we fall so far short. We can't go out there and change every Christian out there. We can't go out there and convince other people uh, to be united and and like-minded. All we can do is control how we approach each other as brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to love each other. Help us to humble ourselves Help us to make a habit out of humbling ourselves so that we might be more effective in in reaching people for you, in encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, um, help us uh, to be not self-centered, to be not conceited, but Lord, help us that we might become unified and like-minded. Lord, we thank you that you guide us. We thank you that you teach us these things. In your holy name we pray, amen.